many of us are following, obviously, but probably don't have any, any measure of real detail in terms of what's going on. Um, and I'm going to let uh, Rami Khouri introduce uh, Dr. Ali. Uh, of course, we're going to have to have Rami, and he's the senior fellow at IFI, among other things. So please, Rami. Thank you, Karim. Uh, so we're, we're happy to do this joint activity with the uh, Public Policy and International Affairs Program, which Karim has on um, IFI here, where I'm a senior fellow and doing uh, various kinds of research. So uh, Dr. Ali Fathullah Najad is a senior, is a visiting scholar, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution in Doha. Uh, he's an Iranian-German political scientist. Uh, he's been in Doha for about uh, two and a half years or so and working on issues. Um, he's, before that, he was an adjunct professor at Qatar University's Gulf Studies Center, postdoctoral associate at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, he has a PhD in international relations from SOAS in uh, London, University of London. And his current research focus is on Iran's protests as well as its international relations with Western and Middle Eastern powers. And he's going to talk today um, about some of his research that he's done, which is going into a publication he's doing, looking at the, uh, the, protest, uh, the protesters and the protest movements in Iran within Iran's triple crises, which he will explain to us. So, Ali, thank you for being here. And the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rami uh, and Karim, uh, for setting this up on such a short notice. I'm very delighted to be here and share my thoughts and research with uh, probably the most vibrant uh, intellectual and academic community we have in this region, uh, which is AUB, so I'm more than delighted to be here. So what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes or so uh, is, talk, uh, is to talk about as the title says, um, the protests in Iran since two years and uh, amid the Islamic Republic's uh, triple crisis. Uh, so a concept I suggest uh, to understand uh, the kind of crises we're seeing uh, in Iran uh, that is uh, socioeconomic, political, and ecological. Um, so the it's going to be, hopefully in the next few weeks, uh, there's going to be a Brookings analysis paper published uh, where I discuss the 2017-18 protests amid this kind of uh, triple crisis. And I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to continue research on that. Uh, and uh, what is, so one of my main arguments is basically to uh, suggest that we have to overcome uh, the kind of methodological nationalism that we have uh, in uh, analyzing, uh, you know, protest movements or uh, developments uh, in countries uh, of the Middle East. Uh, uh, so, to you know, to because there are much more similarities, uh, in my view, uh, than differences between, for example, the Iran and the Arab world. Although the Iranians would love to say that, no, we're different or. There is some kind of an Iranian exceptionalism uh, in Middle Eastern studies in the sense that um, if you talk about protests and protest movements, there is always the suggestion that no, uh, Iran had had a, tra a traumatic uh, experience with the 1979 revolution, so there is no appetite for a radical change. So this is, you know, quite, um, you know, uh, in contradistinction to what we're seeing uh, in the Arab world since uh, 2011. Um, so one of my main arguments is basically no, 
there are much more commonalities also when it comes to the term of the triple crisis, um, uh, but also in terms of the uh, social basis and the political demands of the uh, respective uh, uprisings in the Arab world and Iran. So, in the first step, I'm going to talk about uh, the 20s, uh, about the protests in Iran since um, uh, two years now, uh, because uh, they have opened a new chapter in the history of the Islamic Republic, and I'm uh, going to explain why. And by do in doing so, I'm going to also provide a short comparison to the 2009 Green Movement, which is which uh, many of you are probably more familiar with uh, than uh, the last two uprisings, I would say. Um, because that has been much more, you know, prominent in the media, um, but um, you will see that there, there are, you know, uh, some important qualitative uh, differences. Uh, in the second step, I'm going to, uh, you know, try to define uh, the concept of the triple crisis as I propose it. Um, and last but not least, I'm going to offer some, uh, you know, ideas uh, about potentials of transformation in the Islamic Republic or the lack thereof. Um, so, um, so basically all of this started at the turn of the year 2018 um, when we've seen um, a new nature of protests in Iran that has been quite unprecedented. Uh, what happened in 20, uh, you know, at the turn of 2018, at the end of, uh, you know, uh, December 2017 and then lasting for about a week uh, in Iran uh, was initially sparked by a protest staged by uh, President Rouhani's ultra-conservative contenders uh, in Iran's second largest city in Mashhad in the Northeast. Um, Mashhad is also the center of um, very, very important so-called religious foundations who are de facto uh, commercial uh, complexes uh, who also have, uh, you know, uh, who have a lot of uh, different kind of economic power and uh, you remember that uh, Rouhani's uh, contender uh, during the last presidential elections was uh, Ibrahim Raisi, who is now uh, the head of the Iranian judiciary. And the protests that were staged uh, in Mashhad uh, back then were initiated by the entourage uh, of uh, Raisi. Um, and in order to attack the Rouhani administration's economic performance. Why to attack that or, or to target that? Because what had happened before in the preceding years is that despite all the talk about a trickling down effect of the economic, you know, dividends from the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear agreement, um, there was hardly uh, there was hardly any trickling down effect onto the Iranian population. So after the removal of, uh, or after the implementation uh, of the JCPOA and the removal of sanctions in 2016, um, the kind of trade that uh, materialized between Iran and the outside world uh, to 80% uh, of the trade uh, went to semi-state and state entities in Iran. Semi-state and state entities might be a good definition for the regime. So, and, um, and despite, uh, you know, Iran was able to export oil again, but uh, there was no trickling down effect, despite the rhetoric from Europe, but also from the Rouhani administration and also from Mr. Zarif. And so what happened over those years is that, accompanied by 
um, a, uh, by a kind of neoliberal economic policies that are favored by Rouhani, um, is a, um, that, so that income inequality actually rose in Iran during, the, you know, during basically the implementation phase of the JCPOA. And this created a lot of frustration among uh, various sections of the Iranian population that was uh, quite there at the very beginning, but hardly reported in the media. Um, uh, and I've you know, written back in the days about why uh, the kind of economic policy ideas that Rani has are not anywhere near to be successfully addressing the deep-seated socioeconomic uh, problems of the country. Um, so this is, you know, uh, so th this is the kind of background that the socioeconomic situation in Iran that was also not you know, brilliant before, but even worse uh, before uh, 2017. So this is the kind of background upon which those ultra-conservatives con could stage such a protest. But what happened is that this protest that was initially to be you know, directed against the so-called moderate government very quickly spiraled out of control. And um, in terms of the slogans chanted, so the slogans chanted were also very much not only against the uh, you know, moderate wing of the regime, but also against the hardline wing of the regime as well. And like wildfire, the protests spread all over the country in an unprecedented way. So we had an unprecedented geographical reach of almost 100 towns and cities being affected by anti-regime demonstrations. Um, if you look at the slogans, you can categorize them into three, although they overlap. Um, one is a call for social justice, uh, uh, you know, against the backdrop, backdrop what I briefly explained before. Two is a rejection of the of both main wings of the uh, uh, of the Islamic Republican regime, uh, which is uh, the moderate wing as well uh, the hardline wing politically, but also against the military component, so against the RGC as well. So the entire establishment in its military and political components uh, were rejected. Politically in the Iranian case, or the, in the case of the Islamic Republic, is also very much connected to the power of the clergy, so you had also, which was also quite new, very pronounced uh, you know, uh, slogans against uh, the clerical establishment. And what is so interesting is that in those cities that are considered to be holy cities, uh, home to you know, important Shia seminaries, uh, Om and Mashhad, the anti-clerical slogans were the most prominent. And there were also slogans for, uh, in, in favor of Reza Shah, who is not the last monarch, but the father of the last monarch, so the Iranian version of Ataturk. Um, uh, because he, back in the days, was able to push back and reduce the power of the clergy. So precisely in those two cities that are you know, the clerical centers of Iran, those anti-clerical um, uh, chants were the most prominent, because there is something like a uh, clerical class privilege that exists in both the cities, that, for example, that people are you know, tired of uh, that uh, you know, a lot of money is spent, for example, for all kinds of different uh, you know, uh, scholars and students coming from the region into Iran and getting 
you know, having privileges, uh, but also the, uh, you know, the uh, whole institution um, of the uh, of those seminars, also, you know, enjoying a lot of uh, privileges. So this was the kind of backdrop why it was there was emphasizing those cities that there was this kind of rejection. Um, in other words, the political slogans were very much what you call in, uh, you know, Lebanon, Kullan, Yani Kullan, you know. So all of them <laughs> were equally targeted. And this was quite new, because if you look at the 2009 Green Movement, you see which was, uh, you know, which emerged in the context of the uh, disputed elections or disputed re-election of then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, um, is that people would, uh, you know, ask, where's my vote? And by asking so, they would, um, um, they would uh, basically favor uh, a reformist, uh, you know, a political project. Um, uh, back then, you know, spearheaded by Musavi and Kaloubi. Um, but this time around, for the first time, the reformists were equally the target of popular rage. Because of the legacies of the reformist governments in Iran, not only Khatami did not, um, you know, uh, by the end of the 1990s, did not deliver on its prof uh, promises of economic and political reform, but also the last so-called reformist uh, government, although uh, Rouhani, although Rouhani himself is someone who's coming from deep inside the security establishment, and politically speaking, he's a centrist, but he was supported by the reformists. Um, and Rouhani also could not deliver on the economic and political uh, you know, promises that he made on the socio-economic front I've briefly mentioned. Uh, on the political front, uh, for example, even space for Iranian civil society got worse under his uh, uh, you know, uh, leadership, or not leadership, uh, under his presidency or during his presidency. Um, so this is, so, and the third category of slogans uh, were uh, in terms of Iran's uh, foreign uh, intervention, um, that people would criticize them, uh, those foreign interventions, against the backdrop that those resources that are directed uh, in Iran's you know, regional policies should be redirected to fill the holes in the country itself. So this was the third category of slogans that emerged and, uh, you know, uh, calling against kind of Iranian interventions in, uh, you know, Lebanon, in Gaza, in uh, Syria, and so forth, and connecting it. Uh, so in, in the background of this connection was also the understanding, uh, the suggestion that the uh, Islamic Republic would prioritize um, extending its uh, influence uh, in the region over uh, addressing the needs of its own people. So this was the third category of slogans, which was also quite novel, which came against the backdrop of increasing domestic criticism over Iran's interventions in the region, most notably in Syria, that has very, you know, which was quiet actually, which emerged quite, quite late. Uh, I wrote a two-series article for Al Jazeera, uh, how this discourse has changed in Iran. And so there were also a lot of, you know, uh, students uh, standing up at uh, universities in front of major regime figures and criticizing Iran's, uh, you know, intervention, for example, in Syria in the harshest terms. That how could we, you know, be like the torchbearers of 
freedom and uh, so forth, but we would de facto support a, you know, a genocidal regime. How could we Iranians in the future look into the eyes of Syrian children? You know, the, the kind. And this was quite powerful. Um, and there were, you know, many, and also there was some criticism from political circles, for example, by the former quite popular uh, Tehran mayor, Kalos Chi, um, who also uh, argued that why, are, why is our regional policies primarily based upon the use of weapons? Why don't we use more diplomacy, for example? And what was interesting is that Kavos Chi was actually saying that at, at a uh, campaign rally for uh, Rouhani. And after his criticism, the Rouhani administration spokesperson criticized him. So you see, so there is a kind of intra-elite consensus um, also uh, in uh, foreign policy, anyways. Um, so um, yeah, those were, now, the social, uh, in comparison, to the 2009 Green Movement. So why was it like, uh, why do we have a new chapter in the history of the Islamic Republic since two years now? Because the social base has been novel. Uh, the social base uh, of those uh, protests in 2017-18, uh, which we call the day protests in Iran, referring to the uh, Iranian ca uh, calendar month, um, and the November protests were both, November 2019, were both driven by the lower classes, um, uh, plus what is you know what social scientists refer to as the middle class poor, Asif um, Bayat and others. So the lower classes were hitherto considered to be the main uh, you know social base of the regime itself, and um, all of a sudden, and this was the kind of thing that really shocked the elite. Those were the people who were standing up. Uh, because of the deteriorating socioeconomic situation and because of the changing nature um, of relationship between the Islamic Republic and the poor over the past one or two decades in the wake of a, um, of, of a neoliberalization of economic policies uh, or neoliberal economic policies that uh, you know, started in Iran uh, for more than two decades. So, peu à peu, this kind of uh, neoliberal economic policies helped change uh, the relationship between uh, the state and the poor. For example, we've seen uh, you know, very strong uh, labor movements and strikes uh, already starting with the Ahmadinejad administration um, that were also reflected of this kind of malaise. Um, so the social base, so this is like, the, so it was driven by the lower classes. Uh, the middle class poor, per definition, is people with middle class uh, qualifications and aspirations, uh, but who end up being socioeconomically deprived or poor. So basically, you know, Iran uh, uh, ha has a very extensive university system that was really expanded, you know, since the 1990s. And there are a lot of graduates in Iran. And, um, but many of them end up having no jobs, you know, the kind of, uh, so a lot of, po so Iran's postgraduate unemployment rate is one of the top in the world, it's like at 40%, uh, and I, this is like the official rate. Um, so um, the social base uh, was uh, different, 
from the social base of the green movement that was more the urban middle class. This time around, I told about the unprecedented, unprecedented geographical spread. It was not only Tehran-centric, it was like all over the place, like in places Iranians have never heard of, like small towns, Izeh, and you know that every Iranian now knows where Izeh is, for example, uh, along the Karun River in Khuzestan, where I grew up as a little kid. Uh, and um, so it was all over the country. It was all over the country. And the slogans were much, much more radical. Um, and so in other words, whereas the Green Movement in 2009 was calling for reform, this, those, these protests of 2017-18 and November 2019 were calling for revolution, basically. Um, in terms of the numbers of participation, 2017-18, uh, according to figures from the Interior Ministry, was 42,000 people. Uh, probably was higher, but now, last November, it was according to, to the same kind of official figures from the Interior Ministry, up to 200,000 people. The last protest in November was sparked by a surprise triple, tripling of the fuel prices. So people, you know, people in Iran woke up in the morning and was like, oh my god, the fuel price is like triple. There was no announcements. There was always a discussion in Iran, you know, to increase uh, the fuel prices, to uh, decrease the subsidies. But uh, there was some, you know, some fear and some ret uh, ret uh, reluctance vis-à-vis uh, -vis such a measure, uh, for example, also by the parliament. Um, and this decision was made by a newly formed uh, institution that doesn't exist in the Iranian constitution, which is called the Supreme Economic Council. Uh, that is composed of the three heads of the uh, uh, branches of government. And so this decision was made against the backdrop of really, you know, uh, of, of harsh budgetary constraints uh, after the U.S. Uh, campaign of maximum pressure was quite successful in leading to a de facto collapse of the Iranian oil exports, uh, which stood uh, by the time of the implementation of the JCPOA at uh, you know, uh, almost 2 million barrels uh, per day of exports, and now is around, there are different estimates, let's say 300,000, 400,000 uh, barrels uh, per day of exports, most of which goes to concessionary prices to China. The rest of it for free, basically, to the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, in other words, uh, there is a there was a tremendous budgetary, you know, uh, pressure. Uh, you know, the although the oil income is in contradistinction to other also countries in the region, uh, only about one third or forty percent of the Iranian budget. Uh, government budget, but it's uh, you know much more important in terms of uh, the share of Iranian hard currencies, of course. Uh, Rouhani in December last year uh, mentioned uh, the number of uh, 200 billion dollars that were um, uh, that that were missing uh, because of the uh, sanctions by the United States. Um, 
so um, so and then the protests uh, you know started to be you know there were like peace, peaceful protests about you know after the tripling of the price hike people would uh, you know shut down their cars on on the roofs and so many kind of you know peaceful protests and then those protests spread again like wildfire all over the country again in about 100 cities and I don't know, after one or two days, you had also an unprecedented uh, measure by the Iranian uh, state. There was a near total shutdown of the internet. Near total. Um, so, um, I mean, near total basically means like 98, 99% or something like that. When was that? Uh, this was, I'm talking about the November protests now, that were sparked by the tripling of the uh, fuel price. And, um, Although the government was suggesting to the people, maybe, oh, you're going to be compensated, uh, so there's going to be a, a redirection of, their, of the income we're going to have from the tripling of the crisis to needy families. Uh, but there was no trust whatsoever from the Iranian society side. Uh, and also, I calculated the compensation scheme. It doesn't add up anywhere uh, near the promises. So, you know, all those, uh, all those protests, uh, you know, started and there was an internet shutdown during which there was the most severe repression in the history uh, of the uh, Islamic Republic and one might argue actually also before. Uh, within half a week, uh, four days, uh, there were, according to Reuters and uh, 1,500 people killed um, with a deliberate shoot-to-kill shoot to kill policy. Amnesty International called it uh, the Iranian security forces went on a killing spree. Um, and there was, I mean, there was not really good coverage in the global media except for the New York Times who did a very good job. But um, uh, for example, there was a massacre in Mahshar which is in Khuzestan in the southwest of Iran, uh, which, with a sizable Arab ethnic uh, minority. And um, so there was, you know, Arab youth, basically, uh, or Arab-Iranian youth, uh, who uh, were protesting there, were trying to, you know, block roads, maybe. And then there were a massacre of 300 people on the spot by the RGC. Um, so, not only, and then plus the one, you know, over 1,000 people who were killed, there were 2,000 people injured and uh, at least 7,000 people detained, many of which are still uh, in detention, face torture, are missing, and so forth. Um, not only was the uh, regime's uh, response more ferocious than before, but also from the people's side, it was also more ferocious. Uh, we have quite high numbers of uh, different properties and different sites that may be connected to, or maybe also uh, a symbol of the regime's uh, re religious institutions and military institutions were attacked. Um, and there is, of course, a chance that people did that. Uh, of course, in authoritarian contexts, there is also, you know, the regimes are trying also 
uh, also engage in some kind of uh, destruction of those sites to put it into the shoes of the uh, protesters. Um, but uh, as it may be, uh, there, you know, there was some kind of you know very uh, you know heavy destruction also uh, of different you know properties and far and uh, gasoline stations and so forth. Um, and this incident, the November protests, are a, analytically a con continuation of the 2017-18 protests, for sure. But there, there are some features that are amplified. And so there is somehow a, a leap uh, because, because of the uh, you know, uh, harshness of the response. The killing uh, led to a kind of trauma uh, among various sections of the population that were really surprised by the kind of you know repression that was used because so far in mean, the Islamic Republic since its inception repression is, was one of the main pillars without no doubt but maybe there was the understanding that repression was pinpointed uh, on different social groups on the labor movement the women's movement student movement you know the three constituents of Iran's uh, civil society but this time around it was deliberate you know, they went onto the streets and they just shot people. So this was a shocking element also in the eyes of the middle class. The middle class also was shocked by the internet shutdown for not only a week, that was mostly reported in the press, but in some areas of Iran it took two or three weeks for the internet to come back, and those were the most restful regions. And so in the perception of the middle class who were not the ones who took to the streets in both in both, uh, you know, protests 2017-18 and uh, 2019. Um, although they may have had some sympathies, but they didn't go. And this time around, there was this, uh, it, had, it had an impact upon them. Not only upon them, but also on the Iranian economy as a whole. Who, you know, there were different associations publishing numbers, how much money were lost during this internet shutdown. And this led, for example, to the most radical speeches we've seen in Iran, probably also in the history of the Islamic Republic, inside the Iranian parliament. For example, a reformist uh, lawmaker from uh, Tehran, uh, or from the outskirts of Tehran, because in the, the so-called satellite cities around Tehran were one of the main hotbeds of the November uprising. She, she called inside the majlis about Iran being a tyranny. Um, the mayor of Mashar, I talked about, I mentioned the massacre. He, you know, in, in the Majlis was criticizing this uh, incident in quite, you know, clear terms. And he was pushed away physically by other MPs to shut down, basically. There was such a tremendous public pressure upon the regime because of the mass killings, basically, or because of the large number of killings, that even Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, who is by far the most powerful figure, um, had to respond in a way that he would define some of the killed protesters as martyrs, who would, whose families would get compensation. So there was such a kind of public pressure. So there were aftershocks, you know, tremendous aftershocks. And, okay, now, you want me to call it, to, to talk, yeah, probably with the Soleimani stuff as well. Um, so at the turn of the year, we had the killing of uh, General Soleimani, and 
Okay, I have five minutes, so I'm going to talk about the Soleimani's. Okay, there you go. So I'm going to, so the triple crisis briefly. Um, the triple crisis is basically, it's a term, it's a concept that I propose, and the definition thereof is that, first of all, there is a triple crisis, socioeconomic, political, and ecological. Each of them can constitute a threat to the political system and or the entire country of Iran. There is, each of them are so severe that even if you manage to, you know, to address one of them, uh, you know, the, uh, it will be difficult for the others to be uh, addressed in, the, in its wake. Um, and also, if you look, um, if you look at, you know, policies, there is no indication whatsoever that any of those crises is going to be solved. The socioeconomic situation is as dramatic as in the Arab Spring uprising countries. It's this kind of same statistics. Uh, Iran has one of the highest un youth unemployment rates, graduate, uh, un uh, you know, one also re record high graduate unemployment rates that I mentioned, women underemployment, um, quite, uh, you know, important uh, poverty rates. Um, uh, Raisi himself, during the televised campaign, uh, talked about, uh, was it 16 or 18 million only slum dwellers in Iran? So it's a huge number. Um, anyways, so there are a lot of... The second is the political crisis, and the political crisis goes back to the uh, loss of the uh, ideological appeal of the Islamic Republic. There was uh, a continuous process, but more importantly, the failure of the reformist project. So that the reformists were seen as part and parcel of the regime, not an alternative to it, although they would you know, brand themselves like that. And uh, they were, and the reformist elites were, all of them were anti-protests, those two protests. They were, anti, they were against them. And so people would understand, and this is kind of consensus, I think, now, that the reformist project has failed and is dead. Even Mohsen Rezaei, who is a major security establishment figure on Iranian TV after 2018, said the game is over in terms of the factional politics we've seen in Iran, uh, you know, in the Islamic Republic. Uh, the ecological crisis is also, you know, quite, I mean, although there is some, you know, diversity in the ecological crises in the Middle East, but the Middle East also not only has the world record of being, uh, you know, the, in terms of the worst socioeconomic indicators compared to other world regions, uh, not only in terms of the uh, largest density of authoritarian regimes uh, compared to other world regions, it's also the most water-stressed uh, country, uh, region uh, in the world. And in the Iranian case, you know, there's you know, a number of different uh, you know, uh, factors that contribute to this kind of ecological crisis. Uh, desertification, water issues, uh, air pollution, and so forth. And these ecological problems have also driven protests. And now we come to Ize, for example, you know, along the Karun River, uh, which uh, were, you know, those in Khuzestan where those ecological problems are really heavy. Uh, if you look at the world rankings of the most air polluted cities in the world, you will see that a lot of, uh, you know, cities in Khuzestan are among the top. Uh, you know, most air polluted in the world. So there is a combination, uh, and, uh, and so, so there is some kind of an eco-activism. And, you know, farmers, because of this ecological crisis, you know, uh, 
also protesting, and uh, they're heavily repressed, but uh, you know their 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 livelihood is under threat. So um, you know this ecological crisis affects the livelihood of uh, tens of millions of Iranians, and there are figures from you know various figures from Iranian authorities, but also the UN that talk about you know very dramatic scenarios in the, in the very near near future in Iran. In terms of you know uh, half of the Iranian provinces uh, getting uh, inhabitable uh, within the next decade, for example, and even to you know large sections of the country being you know turning into desert. So this is something you know very very dramatic in Iran as well. So all of that I think um, is not only peculiar to the Iranian case, but they help explain and embed the protests that I've been talking about, and this triple crisis, in my view, also exists in the Arab world as well. Um, last, but potential for transformation to do it very quickly. Um, the problem is that there is no viable alternative to the Islamic Republic. Uh, the Iranian opposition is very fragmented inside the country, the civil society, in the constituents, uh, you know, the labor movement, the women's movement, and student movement have been heavily repressed. Their leaders, most of them are in jail. It uh, doesn't mean that there is no activism, there has been you know, a lot of activism, especially from the labor movement and the women's movement. Um, but um, the main challenge, in my view, is the lack of an intersectional alliance in Iran uh, uh, between the social base and the political demand of the green movement, the social base being the urban middle class, political demand being more political liberalization, and the social base and the political demands of the last two uh, protests, nationwide protests, the lower classes, and call for, let's say, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic justice. So if you combine the social bases and the political demands of the two, and if there will be in Iran an intersectional alliance between the middle and the lower classes, as it arguably was in the first phase of the Arab Spring in Tunisia and in Egypt, this would be the m most important threat to the survival of the regime, and, the, uh, and uh, the regime knows that as well. This is why it, it utilizes scaremongering tactics vis for, for the middle class, saying that, for example, if protests continue, as, as, as it was put up in billboards after two, or during 2008, Iran might turn into another Syria. Uh, but I'm going to talk about it. Uh, yeah, anyway, so this intersectional uh, alliance is something, so this is the most important uh, threat to the regime. Uh, because of the balance of power, what we're going to probably see is, in the near future at least, is uh, that uh, the military component of the regime, which is the uh, IRGC, is going to uh, extend its power. Uh, anyways, they've been you know, quite dominant in you know, in the economic field, in the uh, intelligence field, in the security field, but uh, translating, uh, extending their dominance onto the political arena as well, uh, that is now facilitated by the prospects of the next parliamentary elections in about, uh, in Iran, about 10 years, uh, 10 days. And also against the backdrop of the, uh, of the failure of the moderate project or reformist project or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, so in, in a nutshell, it's difficult to predict the future, of course, but uh, uh, I'm looking forward to, to the discussion, and thank you for your attention. Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Ali. I, let me ask the first question and then we'll open it up. You talked about the failure of the reform project. Uh, are you talking about there the reform project that started with Khatami and then uh, Rouhani? Could you just give us a few yeah. sentences on that? Absolutely. Um, so the reform project, uh, as you said, started uh, in the 1990s, leading to, um, uh, I mean, the idea being that the Islamic Republic can be reformed uh, within, you know, within uh, the constraints that it has. Uh, so the reform, uh, reformist intellectuals would argue that um, uh, we have to, uh, you know, uh, Islam or Islamism should play a, you know, a more reduced role in politics that, uh, and they would also call for more liberties and, you know, uh, a, the political system being opened up a bit, but actually not to the extent of real dissidents to be involved in the, uh, in the political project. And Khatami was um, very much supported by the women's movement and the student movement. And uh, so he, uh, this led to uh, him being you know, elected to, to the presidency of the Islamic Republic in 97. And in 99, uh, during the student uprising that we had in Iran in the summer, uh, people got, the student movement got disillusioned because there was a heavy crackdown against the student movement and basically Khatami didn't say anything. He remained silent. This was the first realization of uh, the erstwhile supporters of the reformist project that maybe those reformists are more with power than with people. Um, and but the most important structural failure of the reformist project is their neglect of, the so of socioeconomic issues. Uh, they more or less have a tendency to favor a kind of neoliberal economic policies and opening up of economy and so forth, but they've never, you know, bothered to, um, to look at the deep-seated socioeconomic problems in Iran, the, the question of the workers and so forth. They've never bothered to do so. Um, so it has ideological but also class, uh, uh, you know, uh, back, uh, class causes. Um, and this led to what I call the vicious cycle in Iranian politics. So whenever there is the reformists uh, who are, you know, uh, at the presidency, they feel they fail to address the social question, which paves the way for the emergence or the reemergence of right-wing conservatives and right-wing conservative populism. So Khatami paved the way for Ahmadinejad, whose main campaign slogan was, "We have to put like." the money uh, from oil income onto, people, uh, onto people's uh, dinner table. Um, and uh, something similar happened with Rouhani and the fact that Raisi, okay, Raisi didn't win, but Raisi, Raisi was able to uh, garner much more votes than a lot of people have uh, had thought. Um, so this is the main failure of the reformist project, uh, the economic, the uh, uh, you know, the social question. Uh, the, on the political project, uh, it has been seen that there are also not steadfast defenders of the Iranian civil society. They are not really, as I said, uh, you know, space even for civil society got worse under Rouhani. Of course, whenever there is a moderate government in Iran, the uh, ultra conservatives uh, try to torpedo them. So, for example, by you know, sending pressure groups 
to all kinds of different cultural events and so forth. Um, so it's not only you know the responsibility of the reformists, uh, but the reformists have been uh, seen as uh, who are definitely for the survival of the regime because they also materially benefit from the regime. Many of the religious foundations are headed also by people who would be portrayed as reformists. So it's not only the hardliners who have like all the you know resources. Of course, they have more resources, but the reformists are part. Uh, of this uh, regime, and they have, uh, so this year, in a nutshell. Thank you. Questions, comments? Well, introduce yourself and uh, yeah. turn on the mic by putting it, pushing it up. Yeah. Yeah, I have eight things the answer is that, and first of all, we're busy ourselves. <laughs> um, uh, but of course, I mean, you know, I mean, those, uh, I'm not sure in how far there is mutual, uh, you know, uh, inspiration. Uh, let's go back to the 2009 Greek movement. When the Arab uprising happened in 2010-2011, a lot of Iranians were saying, oh, because they were inspired by us. Which I think it's a quite, <laughs> uh, yeah, quite a bizarre claim. But um, I think the, uh, what what was probably inspiring was the fact that people on TV would see that the uh, the the wall of fear had fallen. That you know, also in the Arab world, seeing that Iranians would take to the streets against a regime that you know is considered to be quite harsh. So this, you know, there is some you know transborder uh, kind of uh, influence. Uh, but not least because of the lack of language skills and, you know, I think what we need really is much more information about what is happening, in, you know, on the other side of the border, so to speak, from both sides. So this is something that is really missing. I'm not saying, I mean, I know a lot of activists who are very much aware of what is going on, uh, but especially I think the Lebanese and the Iraqi protests were very much more monitored by the regime itself. <laughs> and it scared them. Uh, because of Iran's regional standing, uh, and I don't have to go into detail, you know, it's much better than I do, you know, the Iranian role in Iraq, uh, most notably, and also Soleimani's role in uh, cracking down. I mean, this was uh, this famous uh, mid-October security uh, meeting of the Iraqi government that uh, he was heading, and where he uh, reportedly said that we, Iran, know how to deal with protesters, basically by using lethal violence. Um, so I think for the regime it was much more of a threat, um, uh, although the Lebanese case, as I understand, is a bit different. But um, uh, but yeah, I would just um, uh, I mean there is uh, some kind of uh, inspiration for sure. Uh, but then again, there is uh, you know always the domestic context, national context that is uh, that takes priority, and there should be much more transporter. Uh, you know, kind of exchanges and inspiration, probably. Thank you for your talk. Uh, 
I have a question about, uh, or I want to ask a thought about, uh, there are a lot of uh, discussions these days about comparison between where the Iranian regime stands now and the very last year, 1978 and 1979, of the previous regime. People compared uh, the, uh, the popularity and also the uh, economic situation uh, in some sense of, of, of the middle class or the poor middle class. Uh, do you see any relevant uh, comparison between the two? And also maybe related to that, post uh, the events in November as well as uh, January, specifically what happened to the uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, airplane. Uh, and with the speculation of the uh, upcoming election and uh, probably a very low turnout, do you see that comparison any uh, relevant? And if so, how? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yes, there is a lot of talk in Iran about the last years of the Shah regime and what is going on in Iran right now. Um, and there were, after the November protests, there were people, for example, like Musavi and others, who were openly comparing uh, Supreme Leader Khamenei with the Shah, and even, even suggesting that uh, the former was worse than the latter. Hmm. Um, also people pointing to the fact that never ever had the Shah regime engaged in such brutal uh, and legal crackdown of any kind of protests. Um, and I mean according, if you look at the figures, this is probably true. Um, so there is a lot of comparisons of course with the kind of, you know, it's basic continuation of tyranny in Iran. So nothing has changed. And basically what remains the fact that is that the main promises of the Iranian revolution Socioeconomic, so social justice, and uh, political freedoms has not materialized. So it's a you know it's a dream deferred uh, that uh, over 40 years. So the aspirations are very much the same, uh, but there are important differences, of course. Uh, the revolution in Iran in the 1970s was under very much under the impact of the zeitgeist of that era. It was very much anti-American. Uh, people would not. Uh, you know, like, you know, anti-imperialism was very much uh, prominent all over the world, not only in Iran. Um, and in that kind of uh, discourse, uh, social justice was very prominent. Uh, but in retrospect, what Iranians forgot about is human rights and democracy during uh, the 1979 revolution. Uh, so this was probably the single most important mistake uh, in retrospect, is why the, the different political factions beyond the Islamists and the Khomeinists were paving the way for uh, a Khomeinist theocracy to emerge. Um, and people were, you know, the economic situation in Iran was quite uh, nice in the 1970s compared, uh, okay, quite nice, uh, compared to uh, the situation now. So uh, what I mean by that, quite nice for the people who were the middle class was uh, very much uh, supportive of the uh, revolution in Iran in 1979. Many of them had very good, you know, uh, quality of uh, life. Uh, there was harsh uh, poverty, of course, uh, it was existent. But in terms of the people who were like very much driving, also the middle class, they were in much better shape than the middle class today. Uh, this is what I uh, meant by that. Um, so. Today, the situation is, 
If you look just at the figures, you would argue that uh, actually the situation has been better uh, before. And there's also this understanding that uh, actually what came after the revolution was not a uh, progress but a regress, which is partly, of course, uh, sustained and promoted by a kind of uh, media coverage also, which glorifies the Iranian monarchy, uh, you know, provided by Iranian TV channels outside of the country, who uh, people suggest are financed by uh, Iran's regional foes, for example. So there's also this kind of uh, glorification. But w w what is very important is that because of the real existing Islamism, there is a strong tendency in Iran against the clergy and for secularism. So this is, you know, a very, you know, new development that is very important. Um, okay. Uh, on the Soleimani, I, I should say, I actually mentioned that on the, you want to ask on the Soleimani? Yeah. Okay, please. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about, if these protests were, uh, they are the trend now, and, uh, and this is the uh, advantage of the U.S. and, the, and their allies in the region. Why did the U.S. give the Soleimani if, in all cases, the change is coming in Iran? Because when, once they killed the Soleimani, you see many protests with the regime. So the yeah. regime used it as uh, so a victim of uh, U.S. Uh, a very good question. I would say, I mean, first of all, the U.S. is not really after democracy in Iran. Uh, neither is it after regime change in Iran. I mean, the current administration, there, is, there, there are not really indications thereof. I would understand the maximum pressure strategy of the United States to put economic pressure on the Iran to, for them to be, you know, give more concessions. Um, you don't have the kind of neoconservative zeal that was driven the neocon wars and, you know, against Iraq and against Afghanistan back in the days. Um, uh, Trump's policies have much more in common with uh, Obama's policies than with George W. Bush's policies. Uh, and there is no indication, also historically speaking, that the U.S. would be a promoter of uh, you know, democracy in, in this region anyways. Um, and there is also, I think, I mean, after Trump also suggested to bomb like Iranian cultural sites, uh, I think the last remnants of Iranian society would still, you know, hope for Trump to be such a figure, also lost hope, uh, or lost their illusion. Um, what happened with, at the turn of the year is quite important. Why the U.S. killed Soleimani? Um, I would suggest you to read, there is a cover page of Le Monde Diplomatique this month by Gilbert Ashkar, who lays it quite, quite nicely. It's against the backdrop, of course, what has happened uh, during the past year, uh, also in Iraq, uh, in the context of the escalation between the United States and Iran in the wake of the unilateral withdrawal of the Trump administration from the JCPOA, uh, or the fact of violation of it, um, that there were Iranian provocations against U.S. interests in Iraq, uh, to which the U.S. didn't respond. And most notably, what has happened with the siege of the American embassy uh, in Baghdad uh, that was, you know, uh, had the potential of, uh, you know, re revitalizing the kind of traumatic experiences of the Americans in the context of the hostage crisis in Iran, but also the Benghazi issue. Um, 
So this is how you know this is how you can read the decision to you know the timing of uh, killing Soleimani. Be it as it may, um, th what happened was that the regime exactly tried to use the killing of Soleimani to create a nationalistic m moment uh, or momentum uh, to bring about a short-term consolidation, or at least to bring about a consolidation of the regime after the aftershocks of the November uprising that were still very much alive. Um, and you've seen, uh, you know, the amazing pictures and uh, of the massive crowds of, uh, for, uh, for uh, Soleimani funerals. Um, but you have, in order to really understand or embed them, uh, you have to take it into account two factors. One is uh, what we Iranians know for very many decades, but also authoritarian regimes have engaged in such uh, things, which is that the Islamic Republic masters the art of uh, creating such images uh, of uh, pro-state demonstrations to suggest that there is you know, strong popular support for the regime, not only for the domestic audience, who, who have seen this kind of rhetoric for 40 years and where the credibility curve is, you know, uh, running low, uh, but mostly for ex uh, external consumption. And uh, so this is, and, and for that to happen, for those images to create, you have a combination of, uh, you know, benefits and sanctions. And uh, you have, like, uh, you know, the school, uh, people from school, universities, who are doing the military service, who are part of the various quite extensive security apparatus of the Islamic Republic and their families, uh, who else? So they're all state employees, so all of them are told to go, basically. So this also explains it. But in the Soleimani case, there's another factor that you have to add, which is that beyond those circles who are sympathizing with the regime, and now the estimates is about 10% ideologically sympathizing with the regime, and another 10% materially still benefiting from the regime. So it's, uh, this is like an estimate that is even said by Iranian intellectuals is inside of the country. Um, that beyond those circles, uh, th there has been the idea and the perception that Soleimani is primarily a patriotic hero, a nationalist hero, not an Islamist hero. Uh, a patriotic hero who was um, able to keep the barbarity uh, of Daesh uh, far from Iranian borders and to engage in a kind of Iranian war on terror, you know, or how the Iranians you know, have explained their engagement in Syria and uh, elsewhere against Wahhabi, Takfiri uh, ter uh, terrorism. Um, plus the fact that Soleimani was the one who extended Iranian power and influence in the region. So it appealed to those kind of national sentiments, nationalistic sentiments, and Iranians are uh, quite nationalistic, <laughs> let's say. Um, That's, um, you know, remind, uh, reminding them of like past uh, Persian condor and um, uh, past. So this was, you know, satisfying the need. Uh, of uh, having Iran as a, as a quasi-imperial power. Uh, this kind of portrayal was also the product of a highly sophisticated and uh, professional PR campaign by the Iranians uh, surrounding Soleimani over the past few years, where he was elevated, you know, like he was uh, portrayed to be a saint-like figure. So this explains that 
why even people who might not be sympathetic to Soleim, uh, to the Islamic Republic were kind of sad about his killing. Um, so those two factors. Now, but then something more important in terms of the political development of, uh, in Iran happened, which was the shooting down of the uh, Ukrainian passenger jet. In the wake of the Iranian response, which was dubbed hard revenge, uh, which was this, uh, you know, uh, uh, missile attacks onto the Iraqi uh, military bases, uh, housing U.S. troops. Um, and I was watching, you know, Iranian state TV that night. I was live tweeting about it, and or that morning. Um, and it was portrayed like a huge blow to the Americans, and we made this uh, hot revenge uh, very much you know, as a response to satisfying the need from some constituencies in Iran for a severe and swift response to the killing of Soleimani. Uh, and it was uh, said that, yeah, so this is the RGC, did this operation, we really, you know, uh, it was a major blow to the Americans. Later on it was added that not only was, the, uh, not only was this a revenge action from the RGC, but also from um, Khatab Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies, so they were also somehow included, but the Iran people would not, uh, so, but there was no information detail about the, what was happening. I mean, if I was Iranian sitting in Iran and just watching state TV, which of course not Iranians, I mean, they get their information from a variety of uh, sources, you would think that, oh my God, in two hours a world war is going to break out and America is going to attack us, because it sounded very like belligerent, kind of, and paving the way for a major escalation. Later that day, the figure of like 80 or so American soldiers killed was revealed, or not revealed, like uh, was stated. And later on, of course, Iranians would also find out that actually nothing had happened. It was just a show. Primarily, it was a show. Now, this is my interpretation of what has happened with uh, the accidental shooting down, is that there was not, it was not communicated onto the lower ranks of the uh, security apparatus. So they didn't tell all of the people, by the way, it's just a show, the Americans are not likely to respond because we've been informing the Iraqi government and they've been informing the Americans, so uh, it's not going to lead a, to a major escalation, also given the fact that both Tehran and Washington doesn't want, uh, do not want a full-blown war. And the, whatever the reason was, the, there was an accidental shooting down of a uh, Ukrainian passenger jet uh, with Canadian passengers. As, as soon as Canada was mentioned, we all Iranians were like, okay, they're Iranians, <laughs> because we have a huge Iranian community in uh, Canada. And there were, uh, and uh, you know, people were saying there was an entire Iranian, like it was a university faculty on the plane. This accompanied with the deception of the Iranian government for three days, telling the people, we can assure you, there was not, we didn't do it, and uh, we can assure you, so, I mean, it's 100% true, you know, 100% certain that we did not do it. And after three days, uh, they had to admit that uh, the RGC did so, which then sparked a protest by, driven by, by uh, students mostly, but also by some sections of the middle class, going onto the streets um, and shouting slogans against the RGC and uh, against the prospect of a military dictatorship in Iran headed by the RGC. And this was quite important because 
I think the, the protest, those protests showed that there is a very good understanding of what is going on geopolitically. That the RGC and other factions in Iran might want to engage in a mid-level confrontation with the United States for the sake of uh, you know, diverting attention from the popular uprisings at home. Um, and so the protests were you know, very much targeting this kind of rationale. And we're saying, listen, there is a third voice, it's the voice of the people, uh, that matters in this kind of geopolitical confrontation that has to be. Uh, so in other words, analytically speaking, the shooting down and what has happened in Iran, and this was a shock to many, that the, and there was a realization that actually the Islamic Republic would make sure that <laughs> in its hard revenge, not one single American soldier be killed but they would not take the same precaution in protecting the lives of their own citizens by, for example, shutting down the airport, right? And this is, you know, something major in terms of, you know, psychologically speaking. So this, in my view, also affected the middle class that were, as I said, not part of the nationwide protests over the past two years. Um, yeah, and if I may add, because we're probably running out of time, uh, which is interesting, which I also briefly mentioned to you, is that in order to understand, because November is something very important, so whatever you were reading in the press after the you know, massive crowds for the Soleimani uh, funerals was, was totally ahistoric, because it didn't take into account what just had happened just a few weeks before, in November. And so in November, I'm going to give you one example. So there's uh, not only I give you one example in terms of the reformist lawmaker talking about tyranny, in the Majlis, but also there were speeches by right-wing student activists in Iran who were basically saying what the left-wing student activists had, had uh, said for years now, that basically the Iranian people are engaging in a dual fight against foreign and domestic imperialism, foreign and domestic dictatorship. So the foreign component be the United States and the domestic, well, the domestic, uh, the regime. And even, so because of the large number of people who were killed, it was also like traumatic for all kinds of Iranians. So those, so you could find within even right-wing student activism, uh, this kind of an understanding and the suggestion that out of those two fights and struggles, which one should have priority? The priority should be against domestic dictatorship, the fight. So this is, you know, something I think quite um, incisive uh, about the mood uh, and also the analysis by large sections of the Iran population who would also, uh, you know, consider the regime itself to be the main enemy and also the main responsible also for the economic crisis. Of course, the U.S. sanctions have exacerbated and worsened the situation and have hardly helped uh, to bring about a positive transformation in the Islamic Republic. But people would not blame U.S. sanctions for their economic uh, you know, grievances, but mostly the kind of policies and the political economy of the country itself. And one of the major slogans that, is a, that has been you know, omnipresent in all kinds of nationwide protests, but also in the protests in between, was that, I mean, all of those uh, slogans, by the way, nice, uh, you know, rhyme very nicely in Persian, but um, it's, um, uh, they, all, they, they always say it's America, the regime always says it's America, but the real enemy is at home.
And this is, I mean, quite only present in various, uh, you know, from various sections of the population. Uh, uh, so this is the kind of, uh, yeah, the, the mood. I'm Omar say. here, and then Rayan, and then we get our stuff. Thanks for this, Andy. Two quick questions. First one is, uh, I guess, empirical, which is you said at the beginning that they were, uh, 80% of the benefits of, um, I think, the opening of trade uh, were going to state or semi-state entities. Can you just tell me what you mean by semi-state? Mm -hmm. I should probably follow the particular what you mean by semi-state entities and what that looks like. And maybe just kind of really briefly, you know, what you mean when you say that that didn't trickle down. You can use that to interest phrasing. Um, and then the other question I had was around, so the suggestion is that, as I understand it, that there seems to be a lack of uh, political will within the, within the government and those who hold the power to engage in a kind of serious, fundamental, structural change, uh, let's say you know, economic change to how the kind of everyday life, uh, yeah, how I mean, everyday life kind of goes for the majority of people. And, and so you have this kind of widening up inequality and more and more people kind of demanding, you know, demanding revolution and there's kind of no more space for reform. And I think the reason I bring this up is because Lebanon, Iraq, I know better, you see the same kind of situation. Where in Iraq, the kind of political elite are kind of coalescing around defending a system that fundamentally does not work. And so therefore, these calls for revolution are getting louder and louder and louder, where that is really the only option. So I wonder if you can say a bit more, again, briefly, around, uh, you know, and this, just to add, I mean, it, it, you have this in other settings where this notion of the triple threat crisis in, in, in places like East Asia, you know, 50, 60 years ago, where people were saying, you know, the elite made it kind of decide, decided to, to actually engage in a serious reform project to pull itself up because of facing threats or crises that you, you, that you call them. Whereas in the cases that we have here in the, in the region, they're not, you know, majority of people don't want to address the crisis that, that are, are, are being faced, they're being faced with, so they're doubling down on kind of broad strategies. So I'm wondering if you can say a bit more around why that may be the case, that maybe even the reformist, you know, to what extent you have reformists also defending this regime, uh, the structure, the government structure, um, a bit more on that. And Ryan, why don't you ask a question, then we'll wrap okay. up. Um, yeah, uh, I just have a direct question in terms of your assessment around the missile strike and whether it was a show or, you know, like how effective it was. Um, uh, I got an article just before I came here actually from uh, somebody that wrote from the Center for Strategic and International Studies that like is a think tank in the United States. I'm sure you're uh, familiar with their middle of the road, they're security kind of oriented, and uh, the guy says that that attack was actually uh, a pretty direct belligerent attack against the United States, uh, dumping 17,000 you know, tons of uh, pounds of uh, explosives at a US military base, which is something that hasn't happened before. So the idea here is that it wasn't for show, it was actually uh, a pretty, direct and sophisticated and even more than that, operationally competent uh, attack on US military bases, which has never happened before. So uh, how do you respond to this guy? His name is Ian something.
own thing, but he wrote this article, I guess, a few days ago about how this attack actually caused, you know, dramatic brain injuries and uh, scared the military and probably uh, affected the deterrence factor of the United States within the Middle East. It's you know, and this is a deputy director of missiles. You might know a little more about, you know, the details than maybe you do, but so you should check it out. The other thing is the idea of another show with millions of people coming out for Sulaimani. It's like uh, 10, 15 million people coming out across the country is significant. So how do you assess these things? Well, uh, thank you. Quite briefly, how long, how long do we still have time? Well, we should finish. Okay, okay. So I'm gonna. So if you have questions later on, Omar, and you see. So against the backdrop of what I said earlier about the uh, crowds of the Soleimani uh, uh, funerals, I would doubt that it was uh, such a huge number. Uh, but there were certainly hundreds of thousands. But I would doubt that it was 10 or 50 million. Um, because there are, you know, different. I'm not going into technical. Technical detail, but That's there are not very likely. But anyways, yeah. there are very, you know, there are a lot of. Uh, I mean, you've seen it, this all over Iranian history. I mean, over the past few years and decades, you've seen that all those figures would emerge in terms of the high, high numbers. But you have to, you know, you have to qualify it. And uh, if you not only qualify who those people are, but also uh, to, you know, take a pinch of salt when uh, looking at pictures as well. Because what uh, so th those were you know mostly assembled at central places and squares in Tehran. Uh, anyways, there are doubts about the numbers. Um, about the um, reformists, um, I mean there was some criticism within the reformist movement after 2018 that their leaders were using the kind of pejorative terms against uh, the uh, uprising and the protesters. And so a newer generation, a younger generation was very much, you know, critical of this kind of reformist uh, uh, response to it, but it didn't lead to any kind of changes within the reformist movement. I mean, like veritable changes that they would rethink their kind of attitudes toward political and economic change. One of the main problems with the reformists is that they, they do not like uh, popular mobilizations. Uh, because they say that popular mobilization might, might pave the way for more confrontation with the regime, uh, where the asymmetrical uh, you know, power will play into it. So they don't like popular mobilization. So they prefer the ballot box for change. But uh, as I suggested, it didn't work out. So in other words, what we need is a reform of reformism as well in Iran. Um, in terms of the, there are parallels and differences uh, between the Iranian case and the Arab uprisings for sure, uh, but uh, they are both, uh, you know, the parallels mainly being they're both driven by the dual evil of uh, a kind of uh, socioeconomic uh, malaise and political tyranny. Uh, so this is the defining feature, and the first one uh, uh, refers to the nature of uh, capitalism in each of those countries and the nature of uh, processes of neoliberalization, or in the Iran case, you have two main political economic wings, more you know, the ones of Rouhani who are asking for an opening up of the economy and uh, more in their liberal kind of policies. And the others are like monopolistic capitalist entities uh, who are, uh, you know, who would uh, lose if uh, the system really got opened up. 
and this refers to the semi-state. Uh, the semi-state basically, so religious foundations would be, uh, you know, uh, one semi-state institution. Um, and I mean, uh, you know, the main political entities. Of course, the RGC controls a huge economic empire. Khamenei himself reportedly uh, controls a financial empire worth hundred billion dollars. So those are major economic players, actually. And who, despite their unwillingness to, uh, to open up the system, are now suffering from the U.S. sanctions. Because the U.S. sanctions is really, you know, uh, leading to a collapse of the entire establishment's revenues as well. Um, so this is why I, you know, my suggestion for many years was that there will have to be some kind of an Iranian-American understanding down the road because the Iranians will have to get rid of the sanctions. And only the Americans can do that. In terms of uh, deterrence, it's a very, I mean, I didn't forget about your uh, point, but uh, it's, um, it's a complex, we can talk later maybe, but uh, it's, it's, it's a complex question. Um, in a nutshell, what we're seeing is what is also very parallel uh, with the uprising, is that how Gramsci put it in the prison notebooks, that the old is dying, but the new cannot be born. So we're like in a, in a, in a uh, period of interregnum in which like morbid symptoms can emerge. So basically, so this is also very much so that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. This is also very much um, understood by regime figures and their regime intellectuals as well. They perfectly know that, that the old is dying and, you know, there, there is a you know, lack of a political alternative for anything new to emerge, for example, so the reformers are not uh, this kind of, uh, you know, agent of change. So we are uh, in a long-term revolutionary process, I would argue, in Iran, as we are in the Arab world, you know, uh, a, co a concept that was coined also by Gilbert Ashkar, uh, with whom I had the pleasure to do my PhD. Um, but, um, so, in the Iranian case, there is also, analytically speaking, now you know more and more voices coming out uh, out of Iran. That what we're seeing is a long-term revolutionary process that has probably taken more than a few years. Uh, and this uh, chapter, yeah, I mean, and this chapter has opened up in 2018. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.